Hi, I'm Morgan Block, and you're listening to Climate Curiosities, the podcast where I connect you with real climate science and policy experts to address some of the most common curiosities about climate change. Today's curiosity, is climate change natural? I mean, the climate has changed before, right? So thankfully, we have climate scientist Dr. Jane Tyrannis virtually with us today. Jane is a teaching professor at Scripps Institution of Oceanography, UC San Diego. Her research focuses on paleoliminology, paleoenvironmental studies, and interdisciplinary education on earth, environmental, and marine sciences. Jane, thank you so much for speaking with me today. Sure, happy to be here. So before we get into the science, I like to start out the show by introducing ourselves. What we're going to do is share two fun curiosities about ourselves. I'll start off and give you a minute to think about it. So I studied geology in undergrad, and we had to take a class called Earth History. It was probably one of the most difficult classes I've ever taken, but it also turned out to be one of my favorite classes. That class really solidified my obsession with the Earth and inspired me to continue learning more about climate change and climate history. And my second curiosity is I've been to Giant's Causeway in Northern Ireland, and it is truly one of the craziest places I've ever been. If you haven't heard of Giant's Causeway, it's about 40,000 basalt stone columns created by volcanic eruption 60 million years ago. And I took probably close to 40,000 pictures when I was there. But (laughs) seriously, it was so amazing. Jane? Okay, I like that you shared your first curiosity that you were a geology major because I was a geology major as an undergrad as well. I studied geology. I guess the curiosity is I found geology or I discovered geology in Ohio, which is in the middle of the North American Craton, maybe not the site of some of the most exciting geology, as you just mentioned. But nevertheless, I fell in love with the field. And I think it is, as you already mentioned, a great perspective for climate change. A lot of climate scientists will also come from atmospheric sciences, or they come even from ocean sciences, modeling fields. But I think uh, geology gives you an interesting perspective. Geology is a perspective of the Earth system without people and a study of the Earth system with people. And I don't think there's many other fields where you really get that perspective of the entire Earth, what it would be like without people and with people. My second curiosity would be maybe related to where I work now, Scripps Institution of Oceanography. I think when I tell people that, they assume that everybody at Scripps goes out on oceans and is very exploration-driven, and we're on ships all the time. That's true for some of us, but I guess my curiosity would be I work at Scripps, but I don't go out on ships, and I'm glad I don't because I get really, really, really seasick. So... People at Scripps do all kinds of things. My mission more recently has been to teach undergraduate education about themes of earth science, environmental systems, and a lot of us uh, do that with our feet on solid ground. (laughs) Yes, definitely. So you already mentioned a little bit, Jane, on what you are doing at Scripps, but can you explain to everyone what you study currently, what you've studied in the past? I've heard these words, paleo-liminology, paleo-environment, paleo-climate. What do all those words mean? So, yeah, thanks for that question. I teach a class called Introduction to Paleoclimatology in a big state school. It's a very small enrollment class. It's kind of a boutique class. 
I also teach larger classes, but paleoclimatology, I guess my point is is that paleoclimatology is kind of a niche topic within the field of climate science, but a very important one. And it gives us a unique perspective on what's changing in our climate now. So the way I like to explain this, if you think about it, most of our climate studies are based on the instrumental record, what we've been measuring with instruments, temperature gauges, uh, wind gauges, tidal gauges, and more sophisticated, like satellite data, those instrumental records date back oh, to maybe the mid-1800s if we're really, really lucky. But that's only like a small, 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 small uppermost portion of Earth's history. So in order to study what the natural variability or what the natural rates and modes of climate change are, we have to obviously go back beyond the instrumental records. And to do that, we need proxy information. Those are kind of like clues, maybe not an instrumental data point, but a clue as to what the climate was like in the past, what temperature was like in the past, what sea level was like in the past. If you add up all those clues together, you get a picture of what the climate environment was like on the earth before we started measuring it with instruments. So most anything related to a pre-instrumental record is called a proxy record. And if you add up all our studies of proxy records, that is the field of paleoclimatology. Paleolimnology is a specific subset of that field, and that means the use of lake sediments in order to reconstruct some of these proxy records. There's also ice cores that we use. There's also paleo-oceanography. Those are marine cores, ocean sediment cores that we use. And there's lots of other archives as well. That's what my PhD is in. That's what I'm trained in, is using proxy measurements from lake sediments, past lake records, in order to reconstruct some of the modes and mechanisms of climate change before the start of our instrumental record. One of the proxies that I've heard of, and I think some people have heard of, are tree rings. Can you talk about those for just a minute? Sure. Tree rings is not what I was trained in, but tree rings certainly are uh, probably, in terms of the general public, what people can most often relate to in terms of paleoclimate records. And they're a really great illustrative example of what is a paleoclimate record. So in tree rings, there's some measure of tree happiness, and that's the width of the ring, that you can relate to some environmental conditions. So in temperate climates, the size or the thickness of that ring might be related to how warm it was. And therefore, a warmer weather condition or a warmer summer might have meant more tree growth and a wider ring. In some cases, like in the U.S. Southwest, the tree ring is more related to water availability. And so a wetter year might have a wider ring. In that case, you have the paleo-environmental proxy, that proxy of tree happiness that's related to some environmental condition, temperature and or water availability. And you have the record of time. And anybody who's looked at a segment of a cut tree knows that those rings represent years back in time. So you can count back where you're going. That's your resolution. And the width of the ring in many climates indicates some degree, like I said, of tree happiness, whether it's temperature or whether it's water availability. Those are the two basic things that you need in a paleoclimate proxy, some indication of past environmental conditions and some way to keep track of time where you were in the past. Tree rings are excellent because you can count back from when the tree was living and you can count back because those tree rings are annual. Ice cores are another example of 
excellent records that we have. The ice cores have annual lamination, so you can count back in time where you are, and they contain proxy records of environmental conditions. That's so interesting. So you said for tree rings, you can count back and ice cores, you can count back. But how do we actually know the time period? How are we measuring that? Well, paleoclimate records, and this is one of the holy grails of paleoclimate record, is if you can get that annual resolution. So if you have something that records the climate on an annual basis. There's only a few geological archives that promise that. I mentioned a couple tree rings promise that and ice cores promise that. Let me talk a little bit about the area where I did my PhD and some of my postdoc work. I worked with lake sediment records and some of those lake sediment records also contain annual lamination. So you take a core of lake sediment. Most lake sediments aren't annually laminated. That means that sediment has been homogenized. So you don't have this annual countable layers back in time. Some lake sediments are, and that was the focus of a lot of my research is to look for lakes that would preserve this annual lamination. That gives you a good absolute time resolution. But I think what you're getting at is also the second part is, well, how do you know, even if you know that those are annual, how do you know what point in time you are? Are you 10,000 years ago or are you 20,000 years ago? One clue is if you have the upper part of your record still an active layer, you can assume that you're starting at present day. So you could count back. Some of the longest records that we have at that time go into maybe 10,000 years of annual laminations. There are other records where maybe the uppermost part is gone, or maybe the uppermost part does not contain these annual laminations, but some part further back in time does, in which case you look for modes of independent dating, something that many of your listeners might be familiar with are C14 dating. So you can look for remnants of organic matter in the core material, take that to a lab and measure the C14 in that material and use dating analytics in order to know when in absolute time you are, 10,000 years ago, for example. And then you can use your annual resolution to know where you are in terms of the rate of change over a certain period. Dang, so cool. So you've mentioned 10,000 years ago, 20,000 years ago. So how old is the earth and how do we know that? Well, so the Earth is over 4.6 billion years old, and we know that from radiometric dating of some of the oldest minerals on Earth. Some of the time periods that are most interest to paleoclimatologists today in terms of understanding the modes and mechanisms of climate change that are most relevant now are, let's say, the Ice Age glacial, interglacial climates of the last 2.7 million years. So that's only the uppermost part of Earth's history, obviously, but that's when we start to get into records that can record modes and mechanisms of climate change that are more relevant to our current climate change and to time scales that are relevant to humans and to civilizations. Of those 2.7 million years, we have recorded ice age, glacial, interglacial climates. And so we know that there's natural variability in the climate system. And understanding the modes and the mechanisms of those glacial, interglacial climates and what's different about today, um, that provides a great picture to understand why our current climate changes of such concern to us. 
You asked about how do we know that time periods. That's a time period, those glacial interglacial cycles are a time period where ice cores gives us a lot of information and where also marine sediments give us a lot of information. So when you say most relevant to humans, can you give us an idea of how long humans have actually been around? Yeah, so this is something that's really interesting to think about. So we went from the entire history of the Earth, and so we went now to the last 2.7 million years where we observed these northern hemisphere-driven interglacial glacial climates. Let's put in humans on that. And so we've had over the last half a million years very dominant signals of 100,000-year cycles of glacial interglacial cycles. People might be familiar with that from movies like The Ice Age, which depicts in a cartoon setting what the Earth was like during the last major ice age when literally mile-thick ice sheets were situated over the North American mid-continent, even down into the U.S. Midwest, where ice was flowing down from the mountain glaciers into places in Europe. This was a vastly different scene. This was a vastly different climate. These were huge ice sheets in areas where we now have, obviously, open land. Temperatures were much colder, and these have been occurring on cycles of 100,000 years. We're currently in an interglacial, so that's a time when the ice sheets now have retreated. And we've been in this interglacial maybe for the last 10,000 years. You asked about humans. So humans species, Homo sapiens as our species, has been around for, oh, about 200,000 years. So we certainly have seen as a species, times when we were in these ice age conditions with huge ice sheets. And now humans are living, we have adapted to this interglacial where ice sheets are retreated and our climate is relatively warm and relatively stable. It's also worthwhile to note that agriculture and infrastructure and human civilizations, the way we define many of them now, have all been developed during these last 10,000 years. So although our species have certainly experienced and we've survived and adapted to ice age climates, glacial periods, and our current interglacial, most of the things that we recognize as human civilizations have all developed in our current interglacial climate. Right. And so due to all these societies and cities that are developed in warmer climates, will our future climate being probably warmer, will that be a good thing for society? Well, there's two things to consider here. So let's start with the first one. I was, I've been talking about modes and mechanisms of climate change and understanding how climate has changed in the recent past gives us context to understand our current climate change. And in that context, the outlook is grim. The answer is bad. The answer is no, that's not going to be a good thing. The rate of change is much higher than we've ever seen in natural variability that we've been describing in the recent geologic past. And also the impact on humans looks to be bad. So we've adapted to our current climate condition, which is a relatively warm, but also a relatively stable climate. And so some of the rate of change, but also some of the characteristics of this change, meaning not just the overall warming, but the increase in extreme extreme weather events, heat waves, increased storminess are very, very disruptive to the way that humans have adapted the agricultural systems that we have, the transportation systems that we have. 
the infrastructure. Sea level rise also is another uh, symptom of climate change that is going to be very, very hard for humans to adapt to because we have a lot of our infrastructure, a lot of our civilization, our homes are in the coastal areas. So the point of all those characteristics, uh, the rate of change and also the nature of the change is bad for humans. And the context of paleoclimate gives us the view that this is really not normal. We haven't seen this rate or magnitude of change over such a small period during the recent geological past. There is probably a second way to look at this if you want to look at it from a pure Earth system perspective. So let's leave aside humans, right? Humans are the cause of the change. Humans also will be very vulnerable to this change. This change is not good for us. But let's leave aside the human question. Could you ask, is it good or bad on a non-anthropocentric? And for that, I don't have an answer for you. Humans are the cause of the change. We're vulnerable to this change we're causing. I guess recognizing that we're causing this change also gives us the power to recognize that we can be the solution. We can take away, stop doing the things that we're doing to cause this change. So it puts us in a position of power. But knowing that this change is happening and humans are the cause, the second part of your question might be, well, is it bad for the earth? And there, you don't, I don't know how to answer that in a non-anthropogenic way. Would we otherwise be going towards a another ice age? The Earth system looks like it would go into another ice age eventually. The rate of change would be slower than what we're observing now. And so that's an interesting question that we can ponder forever. Definitely. So it sounds like what you're saying is climate change is natural. The climate has changed throughout the last 4.6 billion years. But what makes it different this time is the rate of change and why it's changing and how it's going to affect us as a species. Uh, yes, I would say that. It, yes, yes, and yes. I would think that's an excellent summary. What we're worried about now is the rate of change. We're worried about why it's changing because humans are causing the change. And the rate that we're changing the greenhouse gas concentrations in the atmosphere is faster than what we've seen from any natural causes in the past. And yes, very much that humans are vulnerable to the changes that we're creating. Wow, that's pretty crazy. How can we convey this information in an effective way to everyone without scaring people so much that they don't want to do anything, but also giving them the proper information to make informed decisions and hopefully find some actual solutions that can be implemented? How do you talk to your undergrads about this? That's an excellent question because talking about climate change research also involves talking to a, a general population about climate change because this has relevance in a way that maybe some other very technical fields don't. The relevance it has is because there are decisions that we make collectively in terms of our government, also individually in terms of what we do in our everyday life, that can either continue to create these changes in the climate that have negative consequences for us, or can, as you mentioned, find solutions. And so how do we present the information in a way that's digestible and also leaves people with with the right message about what we can accomplish in terms of avoiding some of the most negative consequences. I think what we were talking about before is a good way, and this is something that I encourage undergrads in my Introduction to Climate Change course to think about. 
Like imagine that you're talking to a close family friend or a member of your family and they ask you exactly that question. The climate has always been changing. Why are we worried now and why is it our fault? It wouldn't surprise you to know that sometimes that question comes from the media and comes from our elected officials. There are very prominent elected officials out there who, in seeking ways to maybe politicize this science of climate change, will say things like that, like the climate is always changing and present it as something that we have no control over, like something that's out of our hands. The climate has always been changing. So therefore, what could we possibly do about it now? I think that's a very legitimate question. I think the answer is to recognize that humans are the cause of this climate change. And we can see that, as I said before, in the rate of change. We can also see it from all kinds of attribution and detection studies. We can run computer models where we look at the world and force the climate system without the additional greenhouse gas from human activities. That's called a detection or an attribution study that we use climate models, computer climate models, to kind of run an alternative world take out the greenhouse gases and see what would happen. We can do that in geochemical studies. We can look for the signature of what a molecule of CO2 looks like when it comes from a fossil fuel source that has a different carbon-14 geochemical signature because that is an older form of carbon that is a fossil fuel. And then we can look at it as a positive message because we know that humans have caused this current change. We know that humans can also solve the problem. And I think that's an encouraging message. We're not helpless. We don't have to look at this as like it's just changing. We can't do anything about it. As a matter of fact, we really can do something about it. Yeah, that's a really great way to look at it and kind of puts the power back in our own hands. One of the questions that I'd like us to talk about is what is one biggest way that you contribute to climate action and making sure that individually you are trying your best to help climate change? Well, I guess my individual action would be my teaching and outreach. Individually, it's great to reduce your own carbon footprint, to look at your own emissions. There's lots of opportunities for solar, installing solar at your house, and there's still some state rebates. There are charging stations around, and so it's realistic to have an electric car. But aside from those personal things that you do or the individual action you can do, I think our most important action would be collective action. So improving the infrastructure to support a low carbon or a no carbon economy. Part of the way I do that then is through education and outreach and supporting these kind of efforts, what you're doing now. The collective effort, so pushing for policies that then encourage a low or no carbon economy is the level of effort that we need in order to avoid some of the most serious consequences that we see coming down the pipe. A low carbon future or no carbon future has a lot of co-benefits. It's an exciting, cleaner world that has a lot of opportunity for economic growth and people to get involved. It has a lot of co-benefits in terms of reducing air pollution. It has a lot of co-benefits in terms of increasing public health. And so I think helping people visualize that world and then working towards collective action to achieving that world is probably the most significant way to make progress on climate change. 
voting is one of the most important democratic liberties that we have. And so exercising that to support policy and elected officials that reflect our science that we want to see put into policy is really important. Oh, yes. So vote yet. And that's what I like to tell undergraduates as well, too. Uh, many of the undergrads I'm working with are in you know, the first few years after they've gained the legal right to vote and to helping them realize that uh, their voice matters, their vote matters is a fun part of working in that age demographic. Definitely. To end the show, I'd like for us to just model a really quick example conversation on our curiosity. So if I was asked the question, isn't climate change natural? And the climate has always changed before. So why does it matter this time? How should I respond to that? Or where should I point them to see better references and resources? Oh, great question. And it's always great to solidify some of the information that we know in the form of a conversation. So just in one or two sentences, the climate does naturally change. There are natural drivers in the climate system. And there are also anthropogenic, so human drivers in the climate system. Human drivers of the climate system right now, the most significant one is CO2 emissions that are coming from fossil fuel burning and other anthropogenic sources. We know that because we can see it in detection and attribution studies. We know that because the rate of change is above what it has been in natural climate variability. And we're worried about it because, frankly, humans are at risk. A great place to get information on climate change is the Intergovernmental Panel on Climate Change. That's abbreviated as the IPCC. I like to also tell people, though, we have our own national reports. So if you're in the U.S. and and wondering what does our government-approved reports look like, a lot of the information we get if you're just listening to the national debate on climate change is skewed with the political lens. If you want to go straight to what our national science advisors are saying about climate change, I would advise people to go to the National Climate Assessment Reports. The fourth one came out at the end of 2018, and there is a climate science special report associated with that assessment. It has excellent visuals, and it is really tailored for U.S. regions where you can look at the region that you're in, and you can see some of the potential impacts of climate change. It really brings it home. Great. I will definitely put a link to that in the description of this episode so that everyone can click on it and check it out. Jane, thank you so much for coming on the Climate Curiosities podcast show. We have learned so much from you about paleoclimates and climate communication and education and why it's just so important to talk about climate change with others. So thank you again. Thank you, Morgan. Thanks for having me on. If you would like more information about the topics covered in this episode, please see the description for references. And if you enjoyed this podcast, please remember, follow and subscribe to Climate Curiosities. See you next time.